0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the Liberals' shocking transparency about how they want to limit your rights and freedoms, government signing death warrants to businesses, and the fight for religious freedom well underway. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show, Thursday, May 20th, 2021. Great to have you aboard the Andrew Lawton show here on True North. Lots to get to today, but I want to begin with the latest in Bill C10. This is the Liberal government's sweeping internet regulation bill, still making its way through committee as MPs debate and discuss whether it's going to regulate this content, that content, how much it's going to do, and all that jazz. And, you know, it sounded like for a little while there was enough Pushback, Enough criticism that this might not make it through before the summer. And remember, if we do have an election this summer, at the end of the legislative session, anything that hasn't been passed basically goes away. So there was a hope that this might not make it through to the finish line before the summer recess. It doesn't seem that is the case. Bloc Québécois leader Yves-Francois Blanchet has said not only will the Bloc support this bill, but they will actually work to expedite it, which means to shorten the debate on it. So they're going to make it so MPs can't even be raising their concerns about this in as fulsome a way as the bill requires, I think. And they're just going to pass it through. The Bloc Québécois, despite putting up a big, strong fight occasionally in the public, has proven that it is once again, when push comes to shove, going to shill for the Liberals and just pass through whatever it is that the Liberals want to do. This is the problem. We don't really have any real opposition to the Liberals from the left. The NDP still cannot afford an election and doesn't want one. The Bloc Québécois realizes it's in a pretty good situation right now and probably stands to lose a bit of that if there is another election. So all of them just go along with anything Justin Trudeau wants to do. And that includes bringing the content on the internet under government regulation, which cannot happen without government having more oversight in which content can be posted online because government will have control over who can post content online. But I want to talk about this because Bill C-10, which is entirely accurately characterized when people talk about its threat to free speech, is something that the liberals are pretending is just no big deal. This is just modernization. They use modernization to really take away from the fact that they are actually doing something that is authoritarian. And if you think that's my word, it is, but it's also a word that's been said by people that know the intricacies of this particular regulatory regime all too well. Former CRTC officials say that this is a bill that has an authoritarian streak to it. The former commissioner of the CRTC, Timothy Denton, former director general of telecom policy at the Department of Industry, Leonard St. Aubin, Ex-CRTC Chair Conrad von Finkenstein. These are people that know the CRTC very well. They were part of the regulatory regime of Canada's telecom and radio communications world. And they're saying, avoid Bill C-10. Do not pass this into law. These folks signed a petition that had this line, It appears Canada is not immune to the growing trend of government intervention to curtail freedom and seek to control parts of the internet's infrastructure in ways reminiscent of actions taken by authoritarian governments. We are Canadian internet policy and technical professionals writing as concerned experts and on behalf of all those who care about the future of a free and open internet. And I don't want to conflate two issues, but a few years back, there was this huge battle in the U.S. over something called net neutrality. And I don't want to, I mean, you can look it up if you're interested in it. But the point is, all of these people on the left were standing up and thumping their chests and saying, oh, no, 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 we can never do anything that even comes close to compromising what has always been the free and open internet. And now you have the left leading the charge towards a bill that will put internet content under government regulation, even despite Minister Stephen Gilboa's claims to the contrary. And you know, as part of the Bloc Québécois' attempt to just move things along, this week the Bloc introduced a motion, the Bloc MPs on the Heritage Committee, that would basically amend it to say that this power of the CRTC over social media content must be exercised consistent with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. This is what the block motion said, and the committee unanimously voted in favor of it. The problem is not whether the CRTC regulates social media content in a manner consistent with the Charter. The problem is whether the CRTC enforces its control over social media content in the first place and I find it interesting that the government the liberals have been saying this whole time no 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 this isn't going to go after social media content but now now they're admitting by accepting this motion admitting that uh, they are actually doing it but they're like okay well, well we'll do it in a way that's constitutional no don't do it at all That's the problem. Do not regulate social media content in the least. The problem is not how you do it. It's that you're doing it at all. And this is why Global News had a story the federal government experts say is asking people to take a leap of faith that Bill C-10 won't hurt free speech. A leap of faith. Because the whole point is people are passing with this bill a regulatory framework that basically is akin to the government saying just trust us. How well has that worked out for people in the past? Just trust us, not words you ever want to hear from the government, and if you do, you want to say, hell no. David Lametti, the Justice Minister, was appearing as a witness before the Heritage Committee, and he was contorting himself into all sorts of dimensions and directions and shapes, trying to establish why the constitutionality is not really a given, but no, 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 it doesn't matter. I would like to take a moment to explain the few, a few moments to explain the content of charter statements. In keeping with their purpose charter statements are drafted at a high level. They set out in an accessible way potential effects that a bill may have on rights and freedoms guaranteed by the charter. Charter statements also explain considerations that support the constitutionality of the bill. In our discussion of the charter it is also important to stress that when parliament legislates it may affect charter rights and freedoms. This may include limiting their enjoyment or exercise when it is in the broader public interest to do so. This is entirely legitimate. The rights and freedoms guaranteed in the Charter are not absolute, but rather subject to reasonable limits, so long as those limits can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Now, what I should point out here about what Justice Minister Lametti said is that he is not technically wrong. We all know that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the document containing the so-called inalienable, unquestionable, unflinching rights, is subject to that number one section, that section one that says all of these rights that we're about to tell you about, uh, well, you know what, they can be curbed if it's in a reasonable way, reasonable limits, which is what the Charter uh, kind of qualifies all of these other rights with. So what he's saying is constitutional, sound, although that's a a negative reflection of, of Canada more than anything else. But, and here's the big but in this, is that he is more interested in the limits than on the freedoms themselves. And that's the problem with these answers. When he talks about the fact that, oh yeah, freedoms can be suspended if it's in the public interest, and sure, it's not a license to go after freedoms, but we can and we will, and this is all the stuff that we need to do if we're going to do that. The issue is that I want politicians that are going to stand up and say, you know what, we are going to protect and preserve and uphold freedoms because we believe in them, whereas what Bill C-10 is doing is by design trying to exploit these so-called reasonable limits. Which may not be reasonable at all, but they certainly limits. And we should all be very concerned because again if he is more focused on the limits to the freedoms than on the freedoms themselves, we cannot expect an outcome of this that is going to respect free speech, that is going to do what that Bloc Québécois motion uh, says it's supposed to do, which is ensure that social media regulation is done in a manner consistent with the Charter. Remember, one of the big dangers of this bill is that it doesn't actually pass into law the structure of what the government is going to do In its regulation, it gives the CRTC the power to create regulations. So, all of a sudden, what happens is the government gives this new wave of power and authority to the CRTC. The CRTC, which is made up of unelected bureaucrats who are appointed, their political appointments by the liberals, but you don't know their names. You can look them up, but most people don't. You can't vote them out. They are accountable in the sense that they're appointed by ministers, but they're not public-facing individuals, generally speaking. So what happens is they now have this power to craft regulations that we just have to sit back and hope are going to respect the free and open internet that the left used to be prepared to go to war to defend and protect, and now is completely uninterested in so long as the infringements of freedom happen on their terms and by their hand. And like I said, no opposition to this from the left, whether it's because the left genuinely buys into this, or perhaps the left is just too afraid of going after Justin Trudeau. The only criticism of this from within Parliament has been from Aaron O'Toole, who last week shifted his narrative away from we are going to fight against C-10 to if it passes, we're going to repeal it. Canada's Conservatives are working hard to stop it and will oppose this bill vigorously. But let me be perfectly clear. If this bill passes, a conservative government will repeal it. Now, I I take a bit of a, (laughs) I I take a very cynical view on these things, because if he's shifting his focus from we're going to vote against this every step of the way to if it passes, we'll repeal it. This is really the conservatives admitting that, yeah, this is going to pass and there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. You know, a lot of the time, and I am going into the political discussion right now, we hear from the conservatives about how great it was that they reduced the liberals to a minority, that they won the popular vote. That was the, the big coup de grace from Andrew Shear. he thought. But the reality is that if you are in a four-party system where three of those four parties are leftist, you are not really doing all that much as the official opposition in a minority situation. And it's really four of five because you've got not just the Liberals, but the Greens, the NDP, the Bloc. You've got four left-wing parties. Sure, varying degrees of leftism. Quebec has that. Quebec nationalist bent to it. But when push comes to shove, you've got four parties that will all vote in lockstep with one another and one Conservative party, which in and of itself is not always the most Conservative party. That's something we've covered on this show a number of times. But the reality is that a Liberal minority means nothing if the majority of all of the left-wingers in Parliament are prepared to go along with it. And the NDP will talk a big game in committee on some issues, but everything the Liberals want ends up passing, whether it was C7, which allows the mentally ill state permission and assistance in killing themselves, whether it's C10, which again is now going to be passed into law because of an unholy alliance between the Liberals and the Bloc Québécois. Nothing Justin Trudeau has wanted to do since he was re-elected in 2019 has been stopped. So the minority means nothing. And it also means that if the conservatives hope to defeat Justin Trudeau, unless they win a majority, they're not going to be able to do anything. And I I have to bring up this tweet. So Mark Gerritsen, who is one of the most insufferable MPs on Twitter, and by the way, that is a highly competitive category, insufferable MPs on Twitter. But I digress, he's near the top. Uh, Mark Gerritsen uh, didn't like Aaron O'Toole's pledge to repeal Bill C-10, so he tweeted a screenshot of Aaron O'Toole's tweet. I know, it's multi-layered now. The conspiracy thickens. And he says, you be the judge. Option one, four political party leaders have conspired to take away your freedom of speech, hoping you won't notice option two conservatives are trying to hijack an issue for political gain and as i said on twitter i said option one and i didn't even need to think about it yeah that (laughs) that seems entirely plausible that four parties are conspiring to take away your freedom of expression like at first i'm like well he that i mean that's an obvious of course it's option one I didn't realize he was joking it because I saw it at first before I saw who had posted it. So I was like, yeah, that's no, that's an easy one. (laughs) Give me a hard question, Mark Garrison. Yep. Option one, slam dunk. Next. Anyway, the problem with Bill C-10, many problems with it, but one in particular here that I want to focus on is that it extends the power of the bureaucracy, I-, I shudder to use the word deep state because it has conspiratorial implications to some people, but it's very much the case that there is an aspect of the Canadian government that's just there permanently. They're there no matter who's in power, they're there no matter who's in office, and they just stay there, and these people have a lot of clout. The CRDC is one such example. It is an institution that is bigger than the Liberals, bigger than the Conservatives, bigger than whoever is in power at any given moment. Bill C-10 is entrust the CRTC with the power to regulate the internet in perpetuity. That is the whole point of it. You notice how these institutions' power never goes away. I think Stephen Harper did a lot of good. I think Stephen Harper has a legacy people should be proud of, both what he did in the conservative movement and what he did in the country. However, he had a majority government from 2011 to 2015. He had a government from 2006 to 2015. Yet all of these institutions that he got to stack the deck on, the Senate, CBC, CRTC, Canadian Human Rights Commission, these institutions have actually done nothing conservative when Stephen Harper was there, when he got to stack the boards, and since when for a little bit of time the people on these boards were there because of Stephen Harper's appointments. The reason I bring that up is the same reason that everyone in the United States focuses so much on the Supreme Court and Supreme Court appointments, because that is your legacy. But in the U.S., when Republican presidents appoint Supreme Court justices, they tend to make decisions that uphold freedom. In Canada, we have conservative prime ministers who appoint uh, board members for CBC, board members for CRTC, Supreme Court justices, lower court justices, and yet all of these institutions become consumed by the big government mentality that's always fueled them. Now, I will say I spoke at one point to someone who handled appointments for uh, Stephen Harper and he gave a very real assessment. He said, you know what, I've got to, when I get in here, appoint 4,000 people to various boards, commissions and positions. And he was basically saying, show me 4,000 conservatives in Canada that want to take these jobs. And I think that's very true. I, I think there's a real a risk of that, of, of people on the right not wanting anything to do with these institutions. I, I don't see people like John Carpe of the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedom saying he wants to be Chief Commissioner of the Canadian Human Rights Commission. Although I should email John. Maybe we should draft uh, John Carpe for uh, Chief Human Rights Commissioner. <laughs> Might be, to be honest, I think it would actually be a step in the right direction. But the whole point is people on the right are not standing up and seeking these things out. And one of my uh, great uh, friends, Mark Stein, has a quote on this. He says in an American context, when Republicans win, they're in office and when Democrats win, they're in power. And I think you can very much extend that analogy to Canadians as well. When the Conservatives are in, they're in office and when the Liberals are in, they are in power because the Liberals understand the institutional advantage they have, which is why they are stacking the deck on the institutions, like the so-called independent senators group in the Senate, like the CRTC with C-10, and pretty much like everything else Justin Trudeau has laid his hands on in the time he's been in power. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. We still have millions of Canadians who are out of work, people whose jobs have been put in jeopardy because the government shut them down. Various levels of government have put in many measures that have harmed ordinary people over the last, coming up on, what, 15, 16 months now. But fear not, all is not lost, because a grant has been given in Ottawa for $2.9 million to build a Porsche luxury car dealership. Yes, the city of Ottawa has given $2.9 million to build a world-class Porsche dealership. I mean, is there any other kind, really? And it was approved by the Finance and Economic Development Committee. Now, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is saying that Ottawa should not be spending taxpayer money on any kind of corporate welfare. He says Ottawa could use this money to fix potholes or give families a bit of tax relief, but no subsidy to a dealership selling cars that Cost more than most people make in a year. And I I do think that uh, Jay Goldberg from the CTF makes a good point when he talks about how there shouldn't really be any corporate welfare of this kind, but certainly not corporate welfare (laughs) that is basically subsidizing uh, Porsches because if uh, Porsche the company doesn't need to pay for its dealership, uh, that means that either it can make more profit by selling Porsches or it can offer people cheaper Porsches. Either way, not something that I would say is passing the government infrastructure tax even in Canada in 2021, I go back to March when the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, which did a survey of its uh, businesses and stakeholders, found that 51%, so half of Canadian businesses were uncertain if they could remain open, 51%. If you do not have small business and medium-sized businesses driving economic growth, you cease to have an economy. So when half of the businesses in the country are saying they don't think they can stay open, this is before, by the way, Ontario's latest stay-at-home order, before Alberta put in more shutdowns, before British Columbia put in more shutdowns, you cease to have an economy. And just this week, for example, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business released a projection that they shared with the Senate Finance Committee that says 58,000 businesses have already closed permanently since the beginning of the pandemic, with now around 180,000 near closure. He says one in six business, I mean, 51%, that was to do with confidence. Do I think I can make it through? These are harder numbers from the CFIB. One in six businesses at risk of permanent closure, 180,000 businesses across Canada will shut their doors forever before the end of the pandemic, bringing with them 2.4 million private sector jobs. Now, if you're the liberals and you think everything should be a public sector job, this may not bother you all that much. The more people dependent on government, the more control Justin Trudeau has over the country's economy and by extensions, the workers in it. But this is huge. One in six businesses, and I'm going to keep saying that number, one in six Because this is not just about a lack of jobs for the people owning the businesses and running them, but all of the people they employ. Fewer local goods for people to buy, which means they're forced to buy imported goods that are sold at the Walmarts or from Amazon. And I'm a big believer in a free market, which means you should make that choice. But when government is the one telling businesses they cannot open, it's government that's signing the death warrant for all of these businesses. And that's why, despite being a fiscal conservative, I've always been in support of the pandemic response measures like CERB, like SEBA, like all of these measures that have been targeted to individuals and businesses because government does not have the right to tell you you can't work and not compensate. Although my preferred outcome is that government doesn't tell people they can't work. But this is exactly what's happening. So 238,000 businesses could wind up permanently closed. That's the restaurant you love that you're never going to get to go to again. That's the sporting goods store around the corner that you like that's going to be gone forever. That is all of this stuff that completely fuels the economy that the federal government and the provincial governments simply do not care about. We've got to take a break when we come back talking about death to religious liberty in Canada with one of the women who is fighting back against it. That's up next here on The Under Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. A few names for you that you should certainly know by now. Arthur Pulowski, James Coates, Tim Stevens, three Alberta pastors who, due to a myriad of COVID regulations, have found themselves. ...behind bars in Canada, a country that we think values freedom of religion. And even in Ontario, we are not immune from these issues. Two churches in particular, Trinity Bible Chapel and Church of God... ...have had their doors locked by order of the court at the request of the Ontario government... ...to prevent the assembly of worshippers, prevent congregations from gathering and worshipping as Christians again in Canada in 2021. I want to talk about the state of these specific cases, the church lockouts in particular, but also the broader implications of this. We've seen more of these circumstances than we can count. I know it's been a a big challenge for the lawyers who are taking up these cases. The Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, if I understand correctly, had to actually hire several lawyers because there was such a volume of cases that were uh, needing to be fought in court to stand up for people's liberty. Lisa Bildy is a staff lawyer with the Justice Center of Constitutional Freedoms, and a a tremendous one at that. I should put in a a plug. She represented uh, True North and I as we fought against the federal government. Lisa Bildy joins me now. Good to talk to you, Lisa. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Andrew.
0: So the volume of this is is so key here. I, I mean, any one of these cases in a different parallel universe without COVID would have been, I, I think, a significant thing. And now we have numerous, numerous of these, and they continue.
1: Well, that's the thing, too. And once something uh, that crosses a threshold happens in one case, then the threshold is new. And and now all of a sudden, we're not as shocked by the next thing that happens. And then, you know, suddenly now, instead of issuing warnings and tickets, they're, they're going straight to the enforcement measures, because they know they can get away with it. So, um, it, it has been a little bit shocking that how comfortable people have been with that um, with that moving threshold.
0: I was covering a couple of weeks ago uh, the case where the provincial government was trying to extend its lockout of Trinity Bible Chapel, which is in the the Waterloo region, and you laid out, I thought, a a tremendous case. Unfortunately, the the judge didn't see it that way uh, as these things go, but you were talking about really a a very symbolic—I mean, it's real in the sense that the church is locked out, but for the country itself, a a symbolic turning point when government is chaining up church doors—
1: Right, and to be fair, I, I really was making uh, a plea for what this means in the broader context, but knowing full well that in these circumstances there was very little that the judge could do, other than I mean, I suppose they could have uh, ordered a um, conditional sentence and 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 not opted to lock the doors. That was possible. But remember, the government gave itself the power in the reopening Ontario Act to impose these, uh, almost on a unilateral basis, I mean, they can do it without notice, to impose these enforcement orders. And then when someone breaches it, it's not just getting a ticket anymore. Now we're into the contempt of court uh, process. And the courts are, um, of course, very concerned about making sure that the integrity of the judicial system is upheld by not letting people flout their court orders. And so they have to send a message. And that's unfortunately, um, you know, I was making those pleas to, to hopefully encourage the courts to be uh, to remember their the broader constitutional context the fact that we live in a liberal democracy and and that people have fundamental rights and freedoms that uh, we ought not to be just discarding so readily um, but yeah they weren't buying it
0: Let's talk about the length of time we're dealing with here, because the nature of any charter right violation, as I understand it being a a layman, is that it has to be as narrowly limited as possible in scope and also in longevity. Yet we seem to be heading towards indefinite lockouts, indefinite suspension of religious freedoms.
1: Well, it certainly feels like that. And we've been saying this now for a year that that the response should be targeted. It should be a minimal impairment. The legislation requires that. The Constitution requires that. But, uh, you know, we've w- when people are afraid, you it's remarkable how much you can get away with. And the governments know that um, they are, you know, it's not just the churches that are being impacted, although I will say that we've certainly seen uh, there's a lot more lenience in terms of enforcement when the political cause is uh, is more favorable to those who are in charge. Uh, You know, it's, we may very well at the end of all this say, well, that was all a bad experience and go back to treating religious freedom the way that we have in the past. Uh, But we have in our minds probably moved on and cross that threshold, as I was saying. To, to paraphrase Justice Learned at hand from the United States, when liberty dies in the heart of men and women, no constitution can save it. And we have seen how readily people are willing to give up their, their freedoms when they're worried about a virus. And uh, I, so I think it doesn't bode well for the broader principles of fundamental freedoms.
0: Yeah, and and I don't know, I don't want this to be taken the wrong way by people listening. I've had less of an issue with fines, because a fine is something that you have an immediate recourse for, you can either pay it or you can fight it, and as you go through that process of fighting it, you don't actually have to pay it. So there's a a little bit more of of a due process there, Mm -hmm. whereas if your doors are locked, even if you are eventually successful, you can never get that time back that you were locked out of your church. Right. That's exactly,
1: that's exactly right. Um, there's no opportunity in any of that process to be able to raise those constitutional arguments. I mean, I was trying to, to raise them just so that they would be on the mind of the court, how significant all of this was. But really, the, the process of getting that order, the enforcement order, and in, through the contempt proceedings, that is not where the constitutional arguments are raised. Now, the government is supposed to be weighing all of that before they act, before they implement these kinds of things, but they clearly haven't been. Um, and when they have been pushed in the past sometimes they've walked back their, their overreach to some degree but um, but not in every case and so of course it's much harder to get your case before the court to argue the constitutional aspects of it and in the meantime yes all these uh, restrictions continue and people are locked out of their churches and um, and they won't be they may be vindicated down the line but they will not be able as you say to recover the fines and the and and just the lost time in their in their facility
0: I know we have churches that in some cases are saying, listen, we believe we have a constitutional right to assemble. That's the case we're making. Would it be different in the court's eyes, in your view, if you had a church that said, listen, we are, are going to put up, you know, we're going to put six to eight feet between seats. We're going to uh, rigorously enforce masking. We're, we're going to do all of these things. And if they laid out a, a really comprehensive plan, or, or is none of that really factoring into these decisions to to lock people out of their buildings.
1: It really isn't. I mean, if you remember, there was a church just before Christmas that brought an application. It was an injunction. So they had a heavier onus on their side uh, as to Mm. why it should be granted. That was the Toronto International Celebration Church. And they, uh, to my knowledge, were in fact trying to um, incorporate measures to to socially distance and all that sort of thing. Uh, And many other churches have as well. And that is not, it's not taken into account. And remember too, that public health policy, Historically, was more about education than enforcement. It was more about, at least, at least, um, you know, that that was the normal uh, approach. That you you sort of think think about things holistically. Um, you recognize that going to church is, in fact, important and and um, a matter of health for a lot of people. You know, for their for their mental health, for their spiritual health, and so you don't come in with the stick right off the bat. You try to educate and, and you try to encourage people. Um, But it seems like in a lot of cases, they came out with a stick first. And the Church of God in Elmer was one of those examples. If you recall, all the way back to last spring, they had decided to try and meet with drive-in services. They saw that a congregation in Saskatchewan had done it, and -hmm. they'd amended the rules out there and uh, and tried to do it in Ontario. And the police initially said that was fine. But then when somebody complained, which is another big factor in all of this, is how much the population has taken it upon themselves to be like Stasi-like informants against churches. Um, But somebody complained and the police immediately went to enforcement and showed up and started threatening tickets and charges. And, uh, um, you know, that set the tone for that particular conflict. And it's really unfortunate that they went that route.
0: So when we talk about the long-term implications of this, I, I think there are two issues. Number one, these uh, court cases and challenges are mounting to such a point where there is a judicial backlog, and I, I think the Church of God and Trinity Bible Chapel cases are, are set for October, if I'm not mistaken, correct? That's right, yes. A- and and we have other lockdowns, uh, lockdown tickets for businesses, fines for individuals. The church battle is by no means the, the only battle in this area. How much of this down the road do you think will, will really just end up being torn apart, these tickets and citations and fines, based on what you know about precedent and constitutional law and, and all of these things, and also judicial economy, with how many of these the courts will have to deal with in the coming months?
1: Well, I think when it comes to those tickets and charges, a lot of them probably will be disposed of uh, by the by the prosecutor if they don't think they can get a conviction, if they think probably, you know, it's too much effort to have to defend each of these on constitutional grounds. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't start with the assumption if you're going out to... Uh, you know, to, to protest or to to go to church against the rules, to assume that your ticket's going to get torn up. But I think that that, is, will, that will be a likely outcome for a lot of them, particularly if there are some precedents that are set in the Superior Court to suggest that the government was, uh, you know, was was acting out of line on, on any of these restrictions. But that remains to be seen. Um, so far, uh, I would say that most of the courts have given a fairly wide berth to the government on on... Um, on these restrictions. We haven't had a lot of cases on the merits yet. There was one out in Newfoundland. We had one out in BC, which was a judicial review. Um, so a little different, but um, you know, the, there was one argued last week uh, about outdoor gatherings, Roman Baber's uh, application. Um, there'll undoubtedly be others along the way before ours is heard in October. I don't know how they'll turn out, but um um, I'm certainly hopeful that the courts will remember their role is, is also to be that sober second look at what the government is doing and, and uh, you know, they, they aren't there to rubber stamp government decisions.
0: It's easy for us to look at the world we're in right now and think this is just a, you know, a once in a million uh, period we're in, a, a once in a lifetime at, at the very least situation. How concerned are you about future implications of these suspensions of freedom and what you I think very adequately characterized earlier as this internalization by people that this is all okay?
1: Well, I I view this as a continuation of what has already been going on in our society, which is a, particularly in Canada. Which is a collectivization um, in our in our views of things that people uh, now have to have consensus of opinion on so many things, and lockdowns just fed right into that existing political climate where you know anybody who thinks differently from the 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 um, you know for want of a better term what the what the elites say we should be believing and thinking is a bad person, and we you know we actually see them saying that that people who are protesting against lockdowns are bad people. Um, so when you start with a climate that's as politically charged as ours was and throw this into the mix, I, I don't, the, the, new normal that we're going to end up at, at the, at the end of all of this is, is very, um, it's very concerning to me. I, I, I think that we will be in a new constitutional era, uh, where people who want to exercise their fundamental freedoms under the charter, um, will face a lot of resistance from, others in the public and from, you know, the, the legal establishment and so on. Uh, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I, I have to say I've, I've been pretty disheartened over this last
0: year. I realize you're in Ontario but just looking at Alberta for a moment. This is very unique in the sense that on one on one hand we view this as being the the most free province in confederation uh, historically in the political discourse, but we all we also have had three pastors that have been arrested and put behind bars there. Is there a reason that Alberta has been the the province to go in that direction either in in the laws that they have on the books there or is it simply a direction that they're taking that we're not seeing in other provinces?
1: Honestly, I don't know. I, th- I think probably people are more shocked by what they're seeing in conservative, particularly conservative provinces. Uh, there's certainly been a heavy-handed approach, not just in Alberta, but in Ontario with the conservative government and in Manitoba. And, uh, and you, you sort of wonder why that sort of traditional um, support of individual rights and freedoms and, and you know self-sufficiency and people being able to make decisions for themselves, those sort of uh, usual conservative tenants, small government, have just been disregarded and, and tossed out the window. I can't explain it uh, other than to s- to think that perhaps the Conservatives worry that if they misstep, that they will be judged far more harshly than any Liberal government would be.
0: Well, very well said. I appreciate that you are on the front lines of this battle, you and your colleagues, Lisa Bildy with the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Bye for now. That was Lisa Bildi of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. As I said, a great lawyer and a great advocate on these issues. It's easy to be pessimistic. I mean, we, we talked earlier in the show about David Lametti and his view that it's more important to focus on the limits than on anything else. But you know what? You still have to stand for something. And if you're ready to throw in the towel, I get it. But doing so has much bigger implications than, than trying to fight it and see it through to the very end. We've got to end things here. My thanks to all of you for tuning in to the Andrew Lawton show today. We'll be back with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show next week. Thank you. God bless and good day. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.